All right, Daniel chapter 6. So we're going to be at today, Daniel chapter 6. Daniel 6 is going to wrap up the first half of the book, uh, which really kind of concludes the, the narrative portion, the story portion of Daniel's life. And this final story is one that most all of us know. It's one we were taught in Sunday school as a kid. It's, it's the one we think most about, probably, when we think of the book of Daniel. It's the story of Daniel and the lion's den. It's a story of great courage, of God's great rescue, but it serves for us, I think, a, a greater purpose, a purpose that we might often miss. I think it serves to tell us what a life lived in Babylon should really look like. What does a life in Babylon, a life in exile, a life in a country that's not your own look like? Daniel has lived the majority of his life exiled in this foreign country, forced to live and serve a land and a country not his own, just as we have lived the majority of our lives living and serving and working for a land and a country that is not our own. See, we live as exiles in our own present-day Babylon, where we are citizens of a greater kingdom, citizens of a kingdom that is to come, but yet we are aliens and residents here currently in the world. And so we are longing. We are longing like Daniel to go home, but yet we've got to live and serve and work here. Uh, Jer the prophet Jeremiah, uh, at the same time, uh, Daniel's in exile when he's prophesying about it. He tells Daniel, tells all the people of Israel that God gives them this command that they are to go and work for that great city. Go and serve that great city. Work on its behalf and we have that same calling here. But what does living and serving really look like? What does it really mean and look like to live and work and serve and, and flourish and be faithful in Babylon? Well, the story of Daniel and the lion's den gives us keen insight into just that. So let's take a moment and read this story together. Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Daniel writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he pins the very words of God, and he says, It pleased Darius to set, the kingdom, set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account. So that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Well then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king, Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went 
to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man without 30 days except for you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the lion's den. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den, there where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and so commanded Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall be destroyed, shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we learn from Daniel living faithfully in Babylon, is this. He has a a life of dedication. Daniel has a life of dedication. Daniel, at this point in the story, is over 90 years old, and he has spent most all of that time living here in Babylon. And yet still... God is not done with him. He's 90-some years old. You'd think it's time for a break. You'd think it's time to pass the torch on to the next generation, let somebody else do the job. But God is not done with Daniel over 90 years old, which is a good reminder to us or for those of you who have been following Jesus for a really, really long time or you are up in years, it is a good reminder that God is not done with you yet either, that God still wants to use you, that he's still molding you. 
and that you have not yet finished the race, and so God is not done with you running the race. So keep running. He wants to use you. I'll tell you, for me personally, it has been older believers in my life who've made the biggest difference and the biggest impact. It's been those older saints in my life that God has used to refine me and teach me and mold me and help me and encourage me and build me up. And God wants to keep using you in those ways too. It might look different in an older season of your life, but still he wants to use you. He's not done. But also notice this. Daniel has been working in public service here in Babylon probably for 60, 70 years or so. And when all of these other guys get jealous, all these guys, they they realize Daniel's now like second in command. He's over all of Babylon. They want to get rid of him. They're jealous of him, and, and they want him gone so they can take his spot. And what do these guys do? They do what all political leaders have done for centuries and, and millennia. They try to dig up dirt on him. They go and they try to look at Daniel's past. They try to go talk to his friends and figure out what kind of dirt they can find on him so that they can you know, create some scandal and remove him from office. But they can't find any mistakes. They can't find any errors. They can't find any dirt. You see, Daniel was clean. He was faithful. Daniel didn't cut corners. He did not betray his values to get ahead. He was never corrupted by his job or by financial gain. His whole life was found to be blameless and faithful. One author I read described it this way, that Daniel had a long obedience in the same direction. He had a long obedience in the same direction. And as we navigate the complexities of life and family and work and, uh, and all things in between and the complexities of the ups and downs, ins and outs of life, while we are still striving to be obedient to Jesus, it should be our goal as well that we would have a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction toward Jesus. A life that is consistently headed toward Jesus, working to serve Jesus. A life that at the very end, when you look back on your life, you see, all along, I was headed toward Jesus. See, these guys, they tried to dig up dirt, but they found no fault in Daniel. And so, and and they knew, they, they found no fault, and they knew that no trumped up charges would work. No lies or deceit or made-up things about him would work because he had a long obedience in the same direction nobody would believe if they made something up. One of the ways we navigate living in Babylon is to have a living testimony, a living testimony that is your whole life turned away from the past, away from your old life, away from sin, and a life lived toward following God. So that when people look at the totality of your life, from when you started following Jesus forward, they see consistency. And they see a living testimony of what really matters to you. See, do people know where your allegiance is? Do they know what the aim of your life is? Do they know whom you live for and whom you serve? Do they know what your energy is being spent on? When they examine and take inventory of your life, when your coworkers, your family, your friends, when they take inventory of your life, what do they see? 
Do they see a long obedience in the same direction? Do they see dedication? Or do they see something else? Our goal should be to strive to have this long obedience in the same direction. To have dedication. A life worth following Jesus. Second, second thing Daniel teaches us about living as exiles in Babylon is that we should have a life that trusts God even when you can't see him working. Like Daniel, we should have a life that trusts God even when you don't really know what he's doing, when you can't see him working, when you're not sure what's going on. Daniel's 90-some years old. He's seen kings rise and kings fall. He's seen God work miracles. He's seen God change the hearts of kings and bring them to repentance. But now Daniel faces a new trial. A trial that makes it seem that despite all of his work, nothing has changed. It makes Daniel think that over this, his, his long service for God toward this nation, that nothing has really changed. The king has been manipulated by those who want to push Daniel out of their way to make a law that oh, you can only pray to the king. Daniel's like, have y'all not realized that by this point there's only one person you can pray to? Have y'all not got this by now? And the king in his arrogance does it without thinking. The king in his pride does, makes the law without thinking. And the law is written in the law of the Medes and Persians, which means once the law is put into place, not even a king can revoke it or change it. It would be easy at this point in one's life, from Daniel's perspective, to give up, to think these people will never change. It would be easy to look and say, these people will never get it. It would be easy to begin to doubt God, to doubt his plan, to doubt his ability to change these people or rescue the nation of Israel from them. But Daniel models trust. Trust in a sovereign God. Trust in God's plan. Every day, Daniel in his room goes and he prays to God. And now that prayer to anyone but the king was outlawed, what's he going to do? He prays every day, but now prayer is illegal, and so what is he going to do? For him, it's not a question. I love how when you read the text, like there's, it doesn't skip a beat. It's like the law's passed, and Daniel goes and prays, but not even thinking. There's never a question. He goes and he prays, and not only does he pray, but he displayed visibly his deep trust of God as he prayed. He does it publicly with the window open. He's not concealing it. He's not hiding it. This is what I do. This is who I am. This is who I trust. He kneels down at his window and he faces Jerusalem, his home, and he prays. He prays publicly and persistently three times that day. You didn't catch me the first time. You got two more tries to catch me. He did not question whether or not prayer was the wisest course of action. He did not question whether the probable consequences outweighed God's requirement. He did not do the math to determine if God would be okay with him not praying for 30 days in order that he might save his own neck. He simply continued to show the same trust and the same faithfulness that he had been showing his whole life. With his enemies watching, Daniel prayed. Daniel trusts that God is in control, that God has a plan, that his promises are true, that he's seen God deliver his friends from the fire, he's seen God deliver himself uh, when they, he wouldn't defile himself on the food from chapter 1. Daniel knows that God is in control, 
And so he continues his obedience in the face of the threats that seek to deter him. Crisis does not deter his trust. Not in the outcome. Remember, the trust isn't in the outcome that God might provide. The trust is in that in God and what God would do. And whatever God would do would be good and be right. We know he's able, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's able to deliver. But our trust isn't in the outcome, but in the God who always chooses the right course of action. As we try to navigate life here in our own Babylon, in this city that is not our home, as we try to live in a place that does not share our values, our beliefs, or care about our God, we are going to face moments of crisis, whether they be crisis that put our jobs at risk because we are unwilling to do something unethical, or whether our church comes under crisis for a refusal to allow weddings we believe to be sinful, or whether we face the age-old crises of a fallen world that come and go and have never stopped. As we navigate our Babylon, we're going to face these things. We're going to face the loss of career because of lines we won't cross or values we won't agree with. We are going to face the loss of family and friends because we do not align with some value or some belief. Think of all the family and friends that are now estranged because of a wedding they could not in good conscience attend. And even the loss of life that we must navigate in this dreadful place that people die. Living here in Babylon, we will face crisis in difficult days because, because we stood for something. We will face crisis sometimes because we stood up, because we did the right thing, or other times just because the crisis was thrust upon us out of our control. So when we can't see the full picture, when we can't understand what God is doing with all the plot twists and turns and ups and downs, what God is planning, faithfulness, faithfulness does not look like having all the answers. Faithfulness does not look like trusting in the outcome you think God should bring. Faithfulness is trusting the God who calls us to take a stand and to be faithful and to do the right thing that stands in contrast to the world, knowing that it might end poorly for us. But trust and obedience are required still. We sang it this morning, the old hymn, trust and obey. There's no other way. Trusting in the God who holds our story in his hands the great author who created us and who is writing our stories, who knows the ends and knows that it always ends in happily ever after eventually. And so as we navigate life in Babylon, we can't do it. We can't navigate life in Babylon unless we trust, not in outcomes, but in the God who is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He's in control and he's good. We need a life dedicated to God and we need a life that trusts God. Third, we need a life that has courage even when it costs you everything. To navigate Babylon, we need a life that has courage even when it costs you everything. Daniel knows this new law has passed. He knows what's going on. He knows the people that are plotting against him. He knows that continued faithfulness to God, continuing to pray as he always has, will now cost him much more than ridicule. It'll cost him more than mockery. It'll cost him more than insult. It will cost him his life. It will result in him being thrown into the den of lions to be ripped apart. 
And yet, he responds with obedience in the face of danger, knowing the consequences. Devotion to God for Daniel trumped personal safety. Devotion to God trumped personal safety. He was willing to die for the cause of Yahweh, for the cause of Christ. And that's an easy thing for us to say. It is a much harder thing to do. I remember a few years ago I was invited to go on a mission trip to, uh, to a country in Africa. I don't remember which country it was, but I was invited to go. And I was all excited I hadn't been out of the country. And I was excited to go out of the country and be a part of what God was doing in this country through missions. And, and get to be, experience that and be a part of that. But as we continued to talk about the trip, I learned I was going I was going to need like 15 different shots because of all the deadly diseases you could catch while you were there. And I and you know it kind of scared me a little bit, not because I don't I mean I don't like shots, but you know I could do I could handle the shots, but the diseases scared me a little bit, but well, you know what? I got the shots, so that'll be okay. I'll get the shots and I'll be fine. And then I remember hearing that uh that I don't remember how the ranking worked exactly, but they ranked these countries as far as like threat level or danger level. And this one was, was rated like two out of three, hostility zone and threat level. And I remember hearing that going, oh, like, what does that mean? Like, people going to be, like, shooting at us? Or, like, someone going to, like, come in there and see us white people and kill us? Like, wh- like, what, like what, what does that mean? And they're like, well, you know, there's just kind of like these warring tribes and warring factions. And, and, you know, we'll probably be okay. But I remember hearing that going, I don't know if I want to go. <laughs> Right? And, 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 and then they told me that, well, and, you know, it's on the verge of going from like a, a level two danger to the level three danger. And if it becomes level three, they won't let us go. And I was like, oh, all right, okay. I remember feeling, I don't know that it's worth it. And I don't know that I want to go. I don't know that I'm willing to risk my neck for the sake of the gospel. I remember feeling the trepidation of that. It became a level three, and they wouldn't let us go, so I didn't have to make the decision. But I remember feeling, I don't know that I want to risk my neck for this, but is that not what God calls us to do? Is that not what God calls us to do? The point remains, risking personal safety for for devotion to God, to complete his mission, doesn't ever come easy. It's easy to say, oh, yeah, we do that. We trust God. We'll go do that. Take the hill. It is much harder when the rubber meets the road and you have to make that choice going into a place you know that you might not come back from. And so do you know how Daniel was able to make that choice seemingly so easily? How is it that he had so much courage to to do something as simple as pray, knowing that his prayer would end him up being thrown to be devoured by lions? How does he have courage? He had courage because this was not his first rodeo. This was not his first trial. Daniel had risked much when he chose in chapter 1 to eat only vegetables and water, and God, he watched God protect him. Daniel knew his friends did not bow to the idol, and God saved him from the fire. Daniel approached kings with bad news of judgment on more than one occasion. And that cannot be an easy thing, right? Because you upset the king, you might just lop your head off. But he goes and he brings this bad news to the kings multiple times. News of judgment even. And God protects him from the king's wrath. All these moments were trials that functioned as a training ground for Daniel. God had been preparing him to face the lions his whole life. Every little trial taught him something, and it increased his trust in God and his courage to face the unknown. If we cannot have courage when the small trials come, if we do not have, tri- have courage when the small choices of obedience come in our life, 
if we cannot face those small consequences of courage and obedience, then we will not be able to face the big ones either. We will not be able to face risking life and limb if we've not risked losing a job. We will not risk the big things if we've not first risked the small things. They were training ground. And so God may send you through smaller trials now that are preparing you for bigger ones that are to come, for bigger faithfulness and bigger obedience. And we cannot navigate our Babylon today if we do not have the courage to stand for truth when it's going to cause social anxiety or, or social panic or social unrest. To, to, if it's going to alienate us from friends or coworkers, if we can't make those stands, we're not going to make the bigger ones later. If we can't have hard conversations now, make hard choices now when they're small, we won't make them when they're big. The moments of small faithfulness might be the most important in your life. The ones no one knows about and no one cares about. They might be the most important because without going through those, you will never be ready for the big ones when they come. So we have to shut down the computer when you know you're looking at something you shouldn't be looking at. You have to tell your boss no when he asks you to cut that corner. You have to leave the ballot box when your conscience won't allow you to choose between two terrible choices. Whatever trial comes your way, even if it's so small that no one will see and it will make no difference, be faithful. Because it is a training ground for you to stand now so that you can stand when the stakes are much higher. Most of us in this room can at least say that we want to give our lives to the service of Christ's work. We want to make a difference for the kingdom. We can say that. And we can really mean it. But we're not ready to live with courage until we realize that our faithfulness to Jesus, which might cost us everything, also might change nothing. That's the fourth thing we need. A life of obedience even when it changes nothing. A life of obedience, even when it changes nothing. That's the hardest thing. You see, Daniel choosing to be faithful to God, to be obedient, it's challenged by more than just his personal safety. It's more than it's just going to cost him his career and his life. It's that he might be faithful. He might be obedient and put to death, and it changes nothing. It produces no good and changes no one. Daniel is facing down an entire kingdom. A kingdom that is drowning in institutional sin. He is facing a law that not even the king has the power to change. He is standing alone because it seems that none of his people are standing with him. And if he goes through this act, there is a good chance it changes nothing. He's been working for nigh on 60, 70 years, and he's seen little change. And this does not seem to be the thing that's going to push it over to the cliff. It's one thing to give your life and service to a cause where great change, where great victory comes from your sacrifice. It's one thing to, to give your life to save somebody or to make some big difference, but it's another thing to risk everything, to give your life for it to change nothing. What would it matter for one person to stand against an entire nation? What would it matter for one man to stand against the culture and a tradition of godlessness? Who would even care if Daniel did his personal duty to God. 
So if it will make no difference, why do it? Here is the great temptation that we, like Daniel, have to face. Here is the great lie of the enemy. It is that if what I do will make no difference, then it doesn't matter what I do. That's the great lie, that if what I do isn't going to make any difference, it's not going to change anything. If what I do doesn't matter, it's not going to make a difference, then it doesn't matter what I do. That's the lie. It's a slick lie of our enemy. It is one he uses to immobilize us, to render us ineffective, and to give us an excuse. It is his way of giving us a way out of doing the thing that we know we should do. But when we hear the excuse that our doing the right thing won't change anything, we think, well, maybe it's not worth it. I mean, what's me praying really going to change? Maybe maybe it's not worth it because it ain't going to make a big difference. Nobody's going to care. Maybe I don't have to do this obedience. Maybe I don't have to be faithful. Maybe I can wait till next time. And so we say to ourselves, because this product or this practice or this stand for uh, justice or this stand for integrity will make no difference, then I can free myself of its obligation. We say to ourselves, even if I miss the game to make sure we go to church, it won't matter because the game will go on. People will just think we're weird because we missed the game and will think it won't affect my kids because they miss church. Nothing will change, so I might as well go to the game. We think the government has too much money. If I lie on my taxes, who's going to care? Anthony might care because he works for the IRS, but that's the only person. He ain't going to know. What's it going to change? And a little extra money in my pocket goes a long way, and I'll give a little bit to the church. What's it going to matter? Everyone else at work cuts this corner. They all cheat this system. If I do things the right way, I'll get behind, and doing the right thing isn't going to affect anybody. It's only going to hurt me because everyone's doing it. They'll just think I'm weird and lazy. We are a people motivated by results. We are all into doing something. We can all get on board for doing something if it is going to make a difference, if it is going to change something or change someone. If we can push the ball down the field or if we can move the needle, we are motivated to do the right thing. But if doing the right thing or the good thing or the faithful thing is something that goes unnoticed, if it is something that won't make an impact, won't change someone or something, then do we do it? Is it worth it? Often, I think the calculus in our mind says it's not. In 2008, John McCain was running for president against Barack Obama. And during an event of John McCain's, people were asking uh, John uh, uh, the questions. And this woman got up and said, you know, I can't trust that Obama. He's an Arab after all. And she gets up there kind of spouting all this stuff going on about how awful of a man he was. And John McCain takes the mic from her and he stops her. And he says, ma'am, that's not true. Obama is a good husband and a good father and a good man. I just happen to have serious disagreements with him about policy. And that's what we're here to talk about. At a time of political division, it would have been easy to drum up base support by going on and on about conspiracy theories that surrounded Obama at the time. He could have played to the crowd and drew cheers and applause, but he didn't. To respond the way he did, some would have said earned him nothing. And could have cost him everything. To speak well of your political opponent, what does that gain you? It doesn't do anything but hurt you. Should you not use every moment to attack? 
It might not change anything. It might gain you nothing. It might even hurt you, but it doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do. We are not faithful to Jesus because it's practical. We are not faithful because it delivers the results or outcome we want. We are not faithful because it works. We are faithful because he's always been faithful to us. We follow him and do what he calls us to do because there is no one better to trust our lives to than him. We are faithful even when it costs us because he was faithful to us even when it cost him everything. We are faithful when it costs us. And don't be under the illusion that it does it. Faithfulness does cost you something. And so we've got to be faithful even when it costs us because he was faithful and it cost him everything. Followers of Jesus do the right thing even if it changes nothing because we refuse to be changed by the world. We refuse to conform to the world and to get on their calculus. We refuse to be motivated by what motivates the world. We are faithful because our faithful king calls us to be faithful. Daniel knows this. He knows that faithfully following the Lord remains even when the system or the sin or the institution is unchanged by our actions. Even when sins or problems are so large that our efforts to oppose them seem meaningless. Still, God asks for our faithfulness. On this side, on the front side of the obedience, it may not often look like it will change anything. You might look at it and think, this is meaningless. It won't do any good. It won't matter. But we must remember this final point. If we are to be faithful in Babylon, we must have a life of hope because God is in control. Daniel had a choice to make. Be faithful, continue to pray, trust God with with whatever he's going to choose the outcome to be. And when Daniel made that choice, he got on his knees and he prayed facing Jerusalem. He faced his home. The city of God, the place of the temple that he knew was in ruins. That was destroyed. And he prayed. And through the eyes of faith, he did not see ruin and danger and tragedy. Instead, he saw sure victory. Knowing that the promises of God would come to pass. That this momentary suffering of his would be just that. Momentary and temporary. Because he knew his God would in the end win and restore all that he and his people had lost and save the whole world through his people. And so when we face crisis, when we face difficult days, when we face hard decisions, when we have to sacrifice, when it costs us something, when we go through hard times, we have to remember that we serve the God who brings beauty from ashes. The God who brings life from death. The God who always works all things according to his will and for, those, for good for those who love him. Daniel put his hope in God and God rescued him. Right, that's the end of the story. Like God, he puts his hope in God. Daniel's thrown into the den of lions. And, but what does God do? He shuts the mouths of the lions. He shuts the mouths of the lions. But not only did God deliver Daniel from the lion's den. God delivered Daniel's people from their exile. The very last verse of this chapter is one we probably often miss, but it's so important. Verse 28. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. 
Who is Cyrus the Persian? Cyrus the Persian is the one who set Israel free to return home whence they could go and rebuild Jerusalem. And because they went home, that meant that a few hundred years later, in a little town called Bethlehem, a little Israelite baby could be born. Because Cyrus let Daniel and his people go. And why is it that baby needed to be born in Bethlehem? He needed to be born because we have an enemy. We have our own lion, a greater lion. The Bible says that he roams the earth seeking whom he can devour. And he wants to devour you and I. He wants to condemn us in our sin. He wants to laugh at God as his creation is cast into an eternal hell. That great lion wants to damn us forever. But God spared Daniel. And God sent Israel home. And this baby was born, and this baby grew up. And when he did, this baby, this Jesus, grew up, and he was thrown to his own lion's den in our place. But this time, the mouths of the lions were not shut. And this baby from Jerusalem, this Jesus, died. But as we said, we believe in a God who brings beauty from ashes, a God who brings life from death. And so three days later, the corpse of Jesus that sat there lifeless was then resurrected from the dead, heart beating, lungs filled, and he lives. And in that resurrection, do you know what he does? He shuts the mouth of the great lion forever. He silences him. So now he cannot devour you as he wants. So now the enemy might come and accuse you, he might scare you, he might make you feel guilty, but the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 that Jesus took his weapons away. That means he's defanged him, declawed him, and neutered him, and so you belong to Christ, he can't touch you. He instead is a mangy alley cat who cannot hurt you anymore. He's been declawed. He's been defanged. So all of your sin, all of your mistakes, all of your failures, gone. He can't use them against you anymore. God has shut the mouth of that lion who wants to devour you. So no matter the lies he feeds you, we don't listen. No matter what he says to, con- to try to confuse you or condemn you, we don't listen. And because of this, it means we are free. From the constraints of our present Babylon. Guys, it means that we do not have to give in to the priorities of this world. It means we do not have to give in to the values of this country. It means we do not have to conform to their political fights, their values, their hopes, their fears. It means we can be above it all. It means we can work hard to make this place better while we're here temporarily, like Daniel was called to do. But it means that we can live here knowing this place ain't our home. This place is just the Motel 6 that left its light on for a few nights for us to stay until we get onto the road to where we're actually going. And that means we can live. It means we can live a life that is dedicated to God with a long obedience in the same direction. It means that we can trust God even when we have no idea what he's doing and it's confusing and it's hard and it doesn't make sense because our God is in control. It means that we can have courage even when our obedience and our faithfulness cost us something. Even when it hurts, even when we have to sacrifice to be obedient. It means we can do it. And it means that we can be faithful knowing that we might not see the good come from our faithfulness immediately, but we know that God always uses our faithfulness for his good. And so we will u- he will use our faithfulness no matter what because we have hope 
that God is in absolute control and no king, no election, no nation, no crisis, no lion, no demon, nothing can thwart the plans of God because the, li- the mouth of the lion has been shut forever in the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you. We come to you as the lion of the tribe of Judah who has won the battle. The lion who has defanged and declawed and neutered and destroyed the other lion that would seek to devour us. And we come to you this morning, Father, asking that you give us courage to be faithful. Give us bravery and strength to be faithful and obedient in the small tests. Because if we can't be faithful in the small test, we will never be faithful in the big one. Help us to be faithful and obedient when nobody is watching and when nobody cares and when nobody notices so that we can pass the greater trials when everyone is watching and when everyone notices and when everyone cares and when it matters a whole heck of a lot. Father, help us to be dedicated, to have a long obedience in the same direction toward Jesus. Help our priorities to change, our values to change, and that our priorities and our values would not be uh, similar or uh, like the world's, but they would be your priorities and your values. Help us to stop being conformed into the image of this world and what they care about. (laughs) Help us stop looking like the Motel 6 and help us to start looking like the kingdom of God that is coming. And if you're here this morning and you can't be faithful to Jesus because you don't belong to him, well, understand that he shut the mouth of that great lion for you too. That he took and stripped the weapons of Satan. He took the weapons of our great enemy. He took your sin. He took all of that stuff and he nailed it to the cross and he put it in the ground and it's still in there. He's cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. And this morning, if you want to be saved, if you want to know Jesus, if you want your life changed forever, as we sing this song, I'm going to stand up over here. You come and you tell me, Brent, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go from here, but I want this Jesus on my team. I want him to save me. And if you're here this morning and you failed some of those tests, some of those trials, you saw them, you knew they were there, and you gave in to the world, you gave in to the easy way out, understand that your God is faithful and he will forgive you. He will cast that sin upon the bloody body of Jesus and make it no more. But this morning, if you're here and you're struggling with that, you're wrestling with that, that failure, or if you're trying to work up the courage, the bravery, the strength to be faithful going forward, and you just want someone to pray with you, I would love to do that. I'd be honored to do that. There is no one in this room who has not failed. And some of us, like me, have failed in glorious fashion. But we have a God who takes failures makes beautiful lives out of them. If you need anything this morning, I would love to pray with you. If you just need to stand and sing these truths, let's do that.
Let's sing to the great lion who shuts the mouths of our great enemies. Father, we love you so much. In Christ's name we pray, all sheep are saved. Let's stand together.